Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Morning, everybody. Happy are they at school? Are they at home? Is the ceiling falling down day? And welcome to the news agenda with me, Fleet Street Fox. And today I'm joined by the Mirror's deputy political editor, Ben Glaze. Morning, Ben. Morning, morning. How's your ceiling? Uh, well, it's good as far as I know. I mean, spent enough money getting it repaired when it started leaking a few years ago, so it better be. Oh, well, it's a sound at the moment then, hopefully. Uh, everyone go around to Ben's for a quick maths lesson. Now, this is the People's Pay-Per-View, so get into the comments, ask us your questions. Those of you listening later on podcast, I'm just going to have to make sure you conduct a thorough survey of the roof beams before you get on with any work. Morning, Ali. Um, so what have we got for you today? Well, the mirror has splashed on a quite astonishing story, which is that the family of the education secretary, who is currently dealing with a school concrete crisis, caused by Tory failures to rebuild the schools, may have personally profited from government contracts to, you've guessed it, rebuild those schools. And more on that bizarre situation in a minute. But first, I want to take us to page nine, where a multiply disgraced Secretary of State, one of the last ones, um, has signed up to a public speaking agency. Now, Ben, take us through this, please. Firstly, which multiply disgraced former Secretary of State could it possibly be? There are quite a lot of them. But this does seem to be a very well-worn route for failed politicians. So tell us what's going on. That's right. So this is the former Deputy Prime Minister Dominic Raab, previously the Foreign Secretary, it's also the, was also the Brexit Secretary, was also Justice Secretary and Lord Chancellor once upon a time. Um, now, he was forced to step down from government, uh, resign as Richard Sunak's deputy in April when a bullying report came back and found that he'd been uh, bullying and aggressive to officials. Um, there'd long been sort of allegations against him that he was quite forceful in meetings and um, the report said basically it had gone too far. So over the coming weeks, over the following weeks, um, it was widely suggested that he was going to step down from Parliament altogether, um, sort of realising that his dream of one day becoming Prime Minister was never going to happen. Um, and also his majority in Isher and Walton, which is um, just outside London, it's a very, was a very safe Tory seat. The majority, about 20 or 1,000 once upon a time. It's gone down to about 2,500 now. And the Liberal Party ah! really fancy taking it at the next election. Um, mm. I, I live not that far away from that seat. And I can tell you they, they are in pole position to take that seat. So basically, Raab was in a fight for survival to even maintain his seat in Parliament. Decided enough was enough. So he's on the back benches looking for a new job when the election comes around in about a year or so. And yeah, he signed up with this speaking agency. And as you said, it's quite a well-worn route for senior former politicians um, to go onto the after-dinner speaking circuit. Some of them, like Boris Johnson, earns about a quarter of a million pounds for each speech he gives. I must say he's a very funny speaker where everyone thought of him as prime minister. He can certainly hold a room and, and tell a spin a good yarn. Whereas mm. with Dominic Raab, I've done various speeches, come various speeches, and he, it's fair to say he's not in the same league as Boris Johnson when it comes to um, to speaking and holding an audience. So I don't think he's going to be commanding 250 grand per speech, put it that no. way. No, 
Well, one would hope not. So he, he's going to fight the next election. He's not stepped down from his seat, but he appears to have considered that the whole only got 10% of the majority he used to have. It's probably looking a bit sticky. And no, he is, he is stepping down. He is stepping, oh, he is down. stepping down. Sorry, he is he's, sorry, Dominic. He is stepping down and he's getting himself this new seat. He's going to leave some other Tory to try and fight a 2,000 majority. But I'd love to know, really, um, what you think, everybody. What do you think the benefit would be of Dominic Raab giving public talks about things? I'd love to know what he's going to talk about because is it going to be A how to abandon people to the to the Taliban? Is it going to be B, how to what to do on holiday if the sea is closed? Or is it going to be C, you know, what is the point of Dover anyway? I mean, Ben, usually these big corporate firms that pay big fees for these big name speakers to come along, and they have something important and vital to say, either about their experience or about the future or what's going to be happening coming along, as or, or, as you say, being good speakers generally. Um, but how does any of that apply to Rob? He's had all those very big and powerful jobs that you talk about. But, I mean, most of us don't even remember the jobs that he's had or can think of anything brilliant that he did, you know, unless you are the Taliban, in which case you say thank you very much, Mr. Rob. Yeah, I don't know how when people have had their chicken, potatoes, veg and a bit of gravy in some five-star hotel on Park Lane, when he comes on to speak, how they're going to receive him saying, yeah, well, I was on holiday in Greece when the Taliban were rampaging across Afghanistan and I didn't come home because, uh, well, people said I was paddleboarding, but I wasn't actually paddleboarding because the sea was closed. That was the infamous thing <laughs> he came out with um, when he was foreign secretary trying to defend his conduct and inevitably led to his demotion a few weeks later when Boris Johnson and the Prime Minister carried out a reshuffle. I, I suppose the way they might market it is Chartwell Speakers is the um, the agency. There's sort of two really big um, agencies. There's Washington Speakers Bureau and Chartwell Speakers. And he's gone with Chartwell, which is sort of seen as not the, the bigger one of the two, if you like. Um, but of course, he was the Deputy Prime Minister when Boris Johnson was holed up in intensive care, suffering from coronavirus, if you remember back in April 2020. Um, and weirdly, people around uh, Rob at the time, number 10 aides, they, they were quite praising of his conduct in sort of handling those those weird few couple of weeks where for, certainly for a couple of days, it wasn't clear whether the then prime minister was going to live or die. Um, so that might be interesting to hear his, his take on that. But in terms of the other posts that he's held as Justice Secretary, Brexit Secretary, Foreign Secretary, he certainly doesn't have any any good stories to tell from those, I don't think. No, and if he has all that personal charisma, there are ways, of course, of making some of this stuff, you know, jump for an afternoon speak to get some notes and get some jokes in there and so on. I'm not sure Dominic Raab is the person to do it. Maybe he's going to employ a speechwriter. Ali says, do you think we should have a written constitution now? As long as Dominic Raab doesn't write it. Um, we could prosecute these Tory grifters, or can we do it now for all the lies and destruction they've caused in Britain? Fortunately, Ali, you don't get to prosecute a government for being the government and enacting the policies of the government because Britain voted for them in, in quite large numbers, actually. So we're, we're, you'd have to prosecute uh, Tory voters, I think, ultimately. You can prosecute the government for, for getting things completely wrong and not doing stuff that is within the law. Um, and there's probably an argument for some of that stuff. I suspect some of that's going to be coming out during the COVID inquiry, but we'll have to see. Um, as far as a written constitution is concerned, Ben, that was one of the things, wasn't it, that Dominic Raab's big idea as a justice secretary was a bill of rights and, and putting all this stuff down, but it got um, torn up, didn't it? 
I've lost count of how many times I've written about a Bill of Rights. I mean, it was less <laughs> about a written constitution. It was more to replace the European Convention on Human Rights, which Britain helped set up because Winston Churchill had the great idea and British lawyers helped write it back in the 1950s. And then it was finally incorporated in the British law under the Human Rights Act 1998 by Labour. And then there's been endless battles and people thought, oh, we don't have to be bound by the ECHR anymore because of Brexit and we're quitting the EU. And nobody understood that they're completely different and that the ECHR is administered by the European Court of Human Rights in Strasbourg rather than ECJ, and blah, 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 blah. And yeah, they did talk about Bill of Rights, and every time the Tories get upset with the European Convention on Human Rights, they talk about British Bill of Rights, but it's not going to happen. I mean, they've been in power for 13 years. They've probably got one year left to go. Ain't happening. No, no. Uh, well done, Ali. I think you may have broken Ben there early on a Wednesday morning. Um, now, uh, do let us know what you think about Dominic Raab and his uh, his future opportunities. What do you think he'd be employed as? Because, you know, he could talk to them about this is the corporate world he's going to be speaking to, of course, uh, probably. They're going to pay the money. He could be telling them all about bullying and being investigated by barristers and then writing a, a resignation letter that was remarkable, really, just for its bullying, arrogant tone. But the corporate world's probably against that kind of stuff these days. But what next, um, Ben? Where do you think he's going to end up? Are we talking about non-executive directorships or Strictly Come Dancing? Are we going to see him doing Ed Balls, do you think? Uh, I don't think it's do Strictly Come Dancing, but... If there was like a celebrity karate show, oh. he'd be well up for that. You no, know, my dears. Black belt and karate, the throbbing vein in his forehead, like the, the oh. undercurrent of vaguely concealed aggression. You know, he'd be very good at that. If it was ultimate fighting for failed politicians, great. Let's get on that. The UFC. Um, well, Hancock's just done celebrity SAS, isn't he? Yeah, well, I don't, I, I, I confess, think. I don't watch these celebrity programs, but I've certainly. I understand he's done that. Um, I mean, if, no, we shouldn't go down this route. Um, I don't want to give him ideas, but I can see Dominic Raab going, Celebrity SAS, yes, please. Yeah, well, he'd probably want to run it rather than be a competitor in it, wouldn't he? Um, yeah. I, unfortunately. He tried bullying the SAS guys. You'll end up um, with various, as you say, directorships on various city boards and that sort of thing. Um, he was, of course, a human rights lawyer. That is his background. Um, so, and I, I believe he worked at The Hague um, on war crimes investigations. It was obviously a far more honourable uh, profession than, than it would be just taking any number of ships for two meetings every six months or whatever. Yeah, it? I think he was working for um, the government in The Hague, the British yeah. government. So he wasn't like a human rights lawyer who was going out fighting cases that were, were coming to him. He was kind of representing the government in various things. I'm not quite sure how it all worked out. But, I mean, John suggested he could be a bouncer on a nightclub door. No, they're probably far too nice and grown up and intelligent to be Dominic Raab. But um, they're probably quite offended, actually, if you suggest that to them. Anyway, we need to move on right to the main story of the day. And on the front of the mirror, it was revealing this investigation is done into the family of Gillian Keegan, who is the umpteenth education secretary in a year. And according to her, the one who has been thanked least of all of them. Now, it turns out that her husband, Michael, is a non-executive director of a firm called Centerprise, which has won a £1 million contract from the government for rebuilding the schools that it's Mrs Keegan's job. She's just ordered, if I've got this right, Ben, to be temporarily closed and then rebuilt. That's, That's right. Just... It's quite complicated, this. Um, Michael Keegan... Gillian Keegan's husband. He's a non-executive director of this firm called Centerprise, and they have 
various contracts with government. Um, most of them seem to be via the Ministry of Defence, where Centerprise negotiates on behalf of BAE systems, or certainly sort of represents BAE systems. Um, and one of the contracts that has been awarded, and my colleague um, Nick Summerlad, the, our investigations editor, has uncovered this, um, it's for IT to do with the school's rebuilding programme. It's worth £1 million. Now, this was signed um, whilst Gillian Keegan was already the Education Secretary. I think it was um, signed back in May. Now, what the government would say, what the government has said, Department for Education, is that there's been no wrongdoing whatsoever and that the ministers weren't involved in the negotiations of this contract. And what uh, Michael Keegan's side says is that they're, you know, they're always aware of the potential for how this can be represented and it isn't like that at all. What Labour is saying is this doesn't sort of fit the smell test. There are questions to be answered um, for Gillian Keegan, who's obviously enduring quite a quite a difficult week, if you like, um, having closed all these schools uh, because of the concrete crisis that ceilings might collapse, and then being caught on camera um, saying that she was doing an effing good job. And why didn't everybody else get off their behinds and sort it out earlier? Um, and yesterday she stepped up that sort of why has no one done anything by having a pop at the councils and responsible bodies, which are sort of the councils, academy trusts, um, who, who look after schools for saying they should get off their backsides and return questionnaires about whether they've got this type of concrete in their schools and then we can get on and publish the list, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's not great for Gillian Keegan. And this is bound to come up at Primus' questions at noon. Um, Keir Starmer is visiting a school in London at the moment with the Shadow Education Secretary, Bridget Phillipson. Um, so expect Keir to say at the dispatch box at, at uh, midday, I was visiting a school this morning and X, Y, Z. Um, I would imagine all six questions that the Labour leader asks to the Prime Minister will, will focus on this concrete crisis in our schools. Yeah, uh, and perhaps how many that uh, Rishi Sunak, the advice that he got when he cut the number of schools to be rebuilt from 100 to 50 when he was Chancellor of the Exchequer. All those kind of things, as well as, of course, of this possible connection here. Now, the same, you know, the firm says there's systems in place to prevent conflicts of interest. But what do you think, everybody? Do you think it just, if it looks like there's a conflict of interest, that is one? And it doesn't matter whether you put some kind of you know, wall in place internally and Mr Keegan doesn't take part in the bidding process, is it still just shouldn't be happening? Or, on the other hand, as some people might say, having people who are connected to business, connected with government is beneficial, that it actually helps in some way, that it keeps them informed and keeps their feet on the ground in some way. Because um, Michael Keegan did get dividends from this firm that he's a non-executive director from, and it's been winning government contracts. Uh, and since COVID, I think, we've all learned how relatives and mates of those in power can sometimes, and certainly did during COVID, get a bit of a leg up the old contracts ladder just from the people they know, even if it's all above board. Now, there's no evidence that any of that happened here, of course, but it does look very bad. And I sense, Ben, that um, Labour is going to go in on this and it's going to start smelling pretty bad before long. Can... Keegan survive in post, bearing in mind as well that some of her colleagues in government are a bit cross that she's um, sort of raised the alarm about all this concrete roof business because it makes everyone else in charge of public buildings look bad and the judiciary and the hospitals, everywhere else go, hang on, we've got to close them all down if we have to close the schools down. Um, can she survive, do you think? Um, yeah, I think she will survive, uh, not least because Richie Sunak 
wants to provide stability in government and there's probably only a year of the government left. Um, there is going to be a reshuffle probably in the new year, I'd have thought, just to, um, to take the government into that election year with some fresh faces. So he's got everyone in the position he wants. But remember, he appointed her education secretary and mm -hmm. he, he will want to keep her where she is, um, not least because she's a loyalist. And you're right that some of her Conservative colleagues are not best pleased um, about the dramatic action she took um, to shut schools or to partially close some schools just before term started because of this concrete uh, ceiling crisis. Because if RAC is found in other buildings, then the question will be, well, why aren't you shutting those? Is it okay for um, the roof of, the sea of a hospital to collapse, for example, but not a school? Um, and the government's still trying to get to grips um, with how how widespread this problem is, there are inspections going on of you know police stations, port buildings. The, oh. the government number ten couldn't answer this week whether or not there was rack in prisons because they just don't know. Um, they've increased the number of firms who are able to carry out inspections from two to to eight, so a quadrupling of that. What we don't know, <laughs> eight, eight. But we don't know how many surveyors there are within those firms. So whilst it's eight companies, we don't know how, how many people are doing this. We don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know how widespread it is. This is the great problem with this issue, really, is nobody knows how widespread it is. So you, first of all, you've got to send the inspectors. You've got to work out which buildings need inspecting. You've got to send the inspectors in. You've got to find out if they're effective. Around about a third of those that have raised concerns turn out to be effective. Then you've got to work out what mitigation you put in place temporarily. Then you've got to work out whether you can just replace the wrap or whether you need to knock it down and start again. This is going to take ages. It's going to cost a lot of money and it's going to cause an awful lot of disruption. Yeah. And if the, perhaps that's why schools are being slow to return the questionnaires, because if they ha can't get a surveyor to survey the roof, you can't ask a head teacher to go up there and give it a kick and go, well, I think that's rack. You know, if there have only been two firms up till now and they've had five years of warnings about this rack and they've only had two firms able to do it and now they've only increased it to eight, then of course they're not able to do the questionnaires and send it back. And whose fault is that? Blimey, the government. Now, Gad says, um, the problem is I think they're beyond caring what public opinion is right now. It'll just end up in a pile of mounting concerns. And of course, Gad, it's going to be something that eventually Labour have to pay for. Or find a way to pay for. But there is so I said the other day, there is so many ways that you could make this look good. We're going to rebuild schools. It's going to create jobs. You know, investing in the public sector and spending in the public sector gets the economy firing in, in a positive way. So there is there is a good reason for doing it. Now, um, at the same time that the education secretary is facing these questions, thousands of children are not at school or not at the right school or are learning from home or are banned from the canteen because the roof might fall down. Um, and it's being reported on the left hand side of the page there. You can see that ministers failed to use nearly a billion pounds, 790 million quid that was earmarked for school repairs. They just didn't spend it. Um, we've already had the allegations, Ben, that, you know, Rishi as Chancellor slashed the number of schools that were going to be built, rebuilt, because he couldn't afford it. And also his children don't go to those schools. But now Labour's found that this thing, they haven't spent all the money they did have for rebuilding them. Take us, I, take us through it, because, you know, from Rishi Sunak's point of view and the government's point of view, there isn't enough money to do what they need to do. And yet, yet they're not spending what they do have. Yeah, so yesterday afternoon I was um, talking to someone from Labour and they they pointed me to um, the Department for Education's annual report where buried in that report 
um, is, uh, is a table setting out figures for how much they had allocated for various funds. Um, and, you know, it's not just capital rebuilding projects. There's, there's loads of different numbers and, and headings in there. But one of the numbers that was available showed that how much had been allocated and how much had been spent in the financial year 2021-2022 and then the financial year 2022-2023. And when you add it together, this and this was for rebuilding schools, this is capital repairs, rebuilding, renovations, £790 million wasn't spent over two years. It was, it was broken down, I think it was £361 million uh, one year and then the rest the previous year. Um, and when you think of this looming crisis that was bubbling away yeah. and yet the, the money some money was there and yet they couldn't spend it um it, it's baffling that, that the money was even there and it wasn't done now the the government um in that report the department for education says of the slippage in some of the programs it's word slippage was due to problems within the construction industry now it doesn't elaborate on that but we know at the time that um the price of building materials was was going up hugely. So maybe they thought, well, let's delay it because the price will come down and we'll get more buildings done. But of course, the problem with this has been the delay all along. Mm. And also, um, one of the first things suggested to me yesterday, and I, I stress this isn't in your report, but that there's been a shortage of labour within the construction industry, which many people attribute to Brexit. So i.e., this is what was put to me, um, is that some builders left after Brexit and we didn't have enough people to do the work. Um, so that is that was said that that is some of the reason why there was this £790 million underspend. And that is an awful lot of money, right? That's a lot of money. That is that is like eight hospitals. It is four-fifths of a billion pounds. That is a lot of money not to spend fixing schools, which you've now ended up shutting a load of schools because they need to fix them. Yeah. And now I can remember... I, I... The, the head just boggles with some of this stuff. What do you think, everybody? It, it, what, what possible reason can there be for not spending 800 million quid? And as Roger says there, where did it go then? Is it just sitting in a bank account? Did it get used for something else? Did, was it ring-fenced? Uh, Ali says there's not enough money for workers, not enough money for the teachers. They had to go out and strike to get a pay rise. They've got 800 million quid sitting in the education department's bank. Obviously, that's for rebuilding and so on but they wouldn't have needed to go on strike if the, some of the rebuilding work was getting done that was part of the reasons for the industrial action um now i can remember ben not too far away in a newspaper dear to all our hearts once or twice a few years ago uh hearing that some of the executives you know would get a bonus if the expenses bill wasn't too big that year kind of thing and so there was there was there was a, a reason for them perhaps to slash a few things off your expenses claims now and again is there any benefit to a government department in underspending? Do they get some kind of a boost? Do they get something else in terms of what they're allowed to do? Do they get a, you know, a house mark from the from the teacher, from the Chancellor of the Exchequer? Is there a, is there a benefit to saying we didn't spend all our money? Look how look how careful we are with our cash. Uh, the straight answer to that, in terms of in financial terms, is I don't know. Um, but that can work two ways, can't it? Because on the one hand, you can say, "Oh, look, we've been very um, frugal. We haven't, we haven't spent all this money. We haven't, you know, this is what we've saved the taxpayer, if you like." On the other hand, if you don't spend it, and you know, you're, you're, a, you're a braver person than me if you go through, uh, open up the front on expenses. <laughs> but um, there's, also, um, 
a thing where if you're allocated a pot of money for one month or one quarter and mm. you don't spend it, well, then the people above look at it and go, well, you haven't spent that, so you need less next time. And mm. it becomes a perverse incentive to perhaps overspend in uh, one specific period, whether that's a year or a quarter, because then you can say, oh, well, look, we do need it um, for the next year. I mean, there's a you know, joke about local authorities who say they haven't got enough money. And then just as it's coming up to the end of the financial year, every pothole gets filled in your street. You know, or the road gets resurfaced or something because suddenly they need to spend the money. Um, and I say, I do stress this is anecdotal and uh, only in a few council areas. But um, they need to spend the money to show that we do spend it, we need it, so it doesn't get cut next time. Because if, you, if you're one of the, you know, the bean counters who, who looks at what's been spent and what's been saved, if you see someone hasn't spent what you gave them in one year, you go, well, you don't need that much next year, do you? When it's far more complicated than that, you know, there might be a whole host of reasons why you weren't able to spend it in year one, but you're going to actually spend more in year two. Um, it, again, there's too much short-termism in the whole of government. And this was one of the points that the National um, Audit Office uh, chief yesterday made in, a, in an op-ed in the Times. He was like, you know, you need to look at the unsexy, unglamorous stuff that's maintenance, that you can't say, look at me opening this new school. Um, but if you fix the roof, you're not going to say, look at that we fixed the roof on this school. But it's that sort of thing that's actually more important. And if you don't do it, it'll only end up costing more in the long term. Exactly. And eventually, of course, it's all very well. You can say, well, look, we are more frugal. We didn't spend all the money or, you know, earn a point somehow with the Chancellor of the Exchequer. But eventually, if the school falls on some children's heads, then you've got other issues, haven't you? You've got other problems. It's not one that's going to make you look good in the long run. Uh, and as, as John said there, you know, where on earth did the money go? Gad says, is there still an Office of Public Affairs and Accountability? Because the endless cycle of scandals, austerity and financial mismanagement just boggles the mind. I don't believe there, I don't think I've ever heard of it outside of Yesminster. Office of Public Affairs and Accountability, Ben, is there one? Uh, there's a Public Accounts Committee in the Department, uh, uh, Committee of Parliament, which scrutinises government spending and works very closely with the National Audit Office. Those two bodies um, are, you know, are spending watchdogs for how government spends money. And as someone who writes it, reports from both the NAO and the PAC on a regular basis, I can say they're very scathing at times. Yes, I would suggest probably that the unofficial Office of Public Accountability is right here, Gad, right? It's the fourth estate, it's the press, because no one else really is pointing some of this stuff out, so it's probably down to us. Now, parents aren't happy. Voters, I suspect, just think there's another thing that's going horribly wrong under this particular government. Um, but Labour has been going on the attack, Ben, with some new ads and a new shadow cabinet, of course. They're just going to sell this as, you know, Britain is falling apart under the Tories, aren't they? After 13 years, yeah, I mean, this is becoming um, a very, uh, Labour are getting a lot of cap capital out of the government, you know, we've had 13 years of this, the country's fallen to bits, you know, you can't get a doctor's appointment, train drills on strike, schools are falling down, NHS waiting list, etc, etc. When you put it all together, and you can do a, you remember the, the famous, um, conservative poster in I think 1979 about Britain isn't working yeah well, you did one now you know Britain is broken which is basically stealing from David Cameron in 2010 but it's probably got more relevance now in 2023 than it did 13 years ago um, mm. when certainly when you look at the public realm yeah it's um it's pretty sticky wicket uh now we <laughs> Well, well, crikey, what are we going to have to come around this? We don't know. But uh, we do have found some good news in the world. Uh, there is something positive happening. Don't worry. We found it for you. And here it is. 
Now, if you've had enough of this hellhole that's covered in potholes, or as my daughter calls them, Tory puddles, um, there is somewhere you can get away from it all. The remote Isle of Gia in the Southern Hebrides, I think I've pronounced it right, has got turquoise seas, white sands. It looks like a tropical paradise. Only got 163 people there. Uh, and it's advertising for someone to manage its five holiday cottages. Now, Ben, that sounds like a nice, easy, quiet, relaxed job hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Westminster. Do you think that might be the best place for, for all of us to be for the next at least the next year, maybe two? Well, as soon as you and I finish up here, I'm dusting off my CV and <laughs> I mean, I'm totally sold on this. Like you say, white sands, turquoise seas, very few people. It sounds it sounds idyllic. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's a bit far north, I'll be honest. It might be quite cold in the Hebrides. I've never been there. It sounds cold. If it yeah. was the opposite end of the country on the Silly Isles, I'd be well up for that. If it was, it's probably all right in August. I'm not sure what it's like in February out there. And I suspect you're probably a long way from a mobile phone signal, maybe a radio signal as well. But, you know, managing five holiday cottages sounds like quite easy work for most of us. Um, probably still a bit too much for Dominic Raab to handle without some kind of a meltdown. Perhaps um, Mr. Gillian Keegan could find some kind of a profit in it somewhere. Who knows? Uh, we'll have to find and wait and see who gets the lucky person to get that job, won't we? But it's, in the meantime, it's something we can all dream of. Uh, I'd rather exchange the Tory puddles for just a big rock in the middle of nowhere. Sounds quite attractive at this stage of the week. Right, we shall have to see how it goes uh, for the rest of the week. Thank you very much, Ben, for explaining that to us. Thank you, everyone, for taking part. Uh, and we will, sorry we weren't around on Monday. I had an urgent interview to go and do, but we should be here next Monday for another edition of the News Agenda. Till then, everybody, keep out of those Tory puddles and tatty bye. Mm -hmm.